You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I am one of the pastors here. And I just want to welcome you today and say it's wonderful to have you. Uh, Thanks for uh, joining us today and for worshiping with us, worshiping alongside us. Um, It's just really a delight for us to have you here. Uh, Today is the last Sunday uh, in a series that we've been in for a number of weeks on the theme of idolatry. So let me tell you where we're going to go next. Uh, So this has been called One True King. Next week, we're going to have something we call Family Sunday. So on the fifth uh, Sundays of the month, which is four times a year, uh, we sort of shut down the older classes in Grace Kids, and we're all together, not only for the singing, but also for the sermon as well. So we, uh, we seek to adapt that service for knowing that there's elementary kids in the, in the, in the uh, service with us. So we'll do that next Sunday. We'll all be together for Family Sunday. So I want to let you know that's coming up. And then after that, in June and July, we'll go back and finish the book of Judges. So we taught through the book of Judges, and there was so much idolatry in the book of Judges that we just put the pause button on and said, let's talk about idolatry in our culture, in the church, and in our personal lives. And so today is the last day, and today we are talking about the family idol. The family idol. And of all the idols we have discussed, this one is unique. Because truth be told, we rarely think about the family as an idol. Now, all that other stuff we've talked about, sure. Sex is an idol. Power is an idol. Money, an idol. Achievement, an idol. Absolutely. Everybody signed on to that pretty easily. But family? Family as an idol? I mean, aren't Christians all about Family. Don't Christians support family values? Doesn't the church provide ministries to support and come alongside and help families? Didn't I just announce next Sunday is Family Sunday? So, what could we possibly gain by putting family in the category of idol? I get that it doesn't sound quite natural or quite right to evangelical ears. I I get that. Uh, I've never taught on this, at least not the way I'm teaching on it today. I may have referred to it, but I've never taught on this before. But I think it's a significant issue. I think it's perhaps one of a few cluster of controlling idols that rule our city, the idol of family. I think it's very common in the church, and I think it's real in my own life. It's a hidden idol in my heart that goes undetected so much of the time, but when it rears its ugly head, it produces bad fruit that weighs on my soul with with great grief. So I know about this idol, and uh, so we're going to look today in the scripture and consider the family idol. Let's start with this. God created the family. So God created Adam, and then the Bible tells us that he created a helper suitable for Adam named Eve, and that together they were given a calling, a multiple, you know, it's a, it's a multiple calling, but part of their calling was to be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. So what was he saying? Have children that their very calling as part of their existence was to build a family. This was God's idea. Later, when God prepares to bring redemption to the, uh, to the human race, which had been lost uh, through sin, uh, but through Adam and Eve's sin, he comes to a guy named Abraham. Abraham and his wife Sarah are childless, and God says to them, I'm going to make a people of you. I'm going to make a nation of you, and from you uh, will come a people that will be a blessing to the whole world, to all the nations. That, that people was Israel. And Israel would be the nation that would be a blessing to the world because Christ would come through the people of Israel. And so what was God's plan for bringing uh, his message to the whole world? It was family. He said, you're going to pass it on to your children who will pass it on to their children. So ideally, through this covenant people, the message of God was to be passed on one generation to another so that the nations could see our God and who he is. And when we get to the New Testament, family's not dialed down at all. I mean, there's astonishing statements made about family in the New Testament. For instance, Paul says that marriage itself, that a primary purpose of marriage is that it's a picture of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, wives are to respect their husbands as the church responds to Christ. So his picture there, he's not lowering the stakes in the New Testament. They said, now that we got Jesus in the family deal, that's not really that important. No, there are strong statements made in the New Testament about family. So how could this God-given, gospel-displaying, covenantal institution be an idol? Well, in this series, what we've learned is that like anything else, an idol may be a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. An idol is not necessarily in and of itself something that is bad, like family. It's, it's something that could even be a gift of God, but something that becomes ultimate. Something that I want too much. Something that becomes my chief love, my chief focus such that it, it compromises my allegiance to Jesus. Dale Ralph Davis of The Family Idol said this, we have to watch that our loyalties do not become our idolatries. Our loyalties can become our idolatries because an idol is anything that is a substitute for God. An idol is a person or a place or a thing that I go to when God is not enough. It's where I find my meaning, my ultimate significance, my ultimate purpose. It's where I find relief and my ultimate joy. My loyalties can become my idolatries. And as we read in the New Testament, we find that Jesus makes this point, that the loyalty to family can challenge the loyalty to Christ. And he talks about this a lot in the Gospel of Luke. There's so many verses in the Gospel of Luke about family that never get touched on in church, and we're going to touch on a few of them today, and very quickly you'll see why they're never touched on, because they're hard to explain sometimes. So Luke 14, 25 through 26, here's Jesus challenging family loyalty uh, as an idolatry. He says, it says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not 
hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I've I've never been to a marriage seminar where that was the theme verse. I've never been to a parenting seminar where that was the verse on the t-shirt. Or where a church said, our parenting ministry is called 1426. What's that? It's named after Luke 1426. If you don't hate your kids, you can't follow Jesus. Now, this verse is rarely taught. And when it is, the teacher rushes in to tell us what it doesn't mean. It can't mean this, doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that. And we just sort of tamp it down. Get back in your box. Luke 14, 26. We're going to sit in it just for a minute, though, this morning and consider it. When we rush in to say what it doesn't mean so quickly, uh, we miss the point of what is being said here. As a matter of fact, some people are nervous already that I haven't said what it doesn't mean. Um, This is a verse about the preeminence of Christ. It's a verse that addresses the preeminence of Jesus. I mean, who could say what he said? Who could say unless you hate your family, you cannot follow me? God instituted the family. So who could possibly say something like that but God himself? Jesus is saying to follow me means that you must recognize my worth, Jesus says. You must recognize my worth as God, and you must prioritize me above everything and everyone, even good things, even gifts. You must prioritize every, me over everything. When Jesus says, you must follow me, and you must, unless you hate yourself and hate your family, you cannot follow me. What he's really saying here is he's, he's emphasizing the first commandment, the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's really the heart of what he's saying. To, to follow me, I must be Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of our entire lives. That is the foundational idea behind discipleship. Let that sink in. Jesus is saying, I must be above everything and everyone. And he says it in a startling way. Now, to bring some relief to the room, he is speaking in hyperbole. He is using a figure of speech when he says, hate your family. He is using a figure of speech that means to love less. It's a comparative term. To to hate one means that they are loved less than the object of their comparison. And that's not just me being fanciful or toning it down so everybody comes back next Sunday. Uh, It's what actually Jesus says in another place. So in Matthew 10, 37, this is the parallel verse, and this is what he says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So you see what he's saying? Whoever hates his father or mother, here he's saying that you must not love your father and mother more than me. This is what he means in the other passage as well. But note this. What he's saying is that love for family can be a hindrance to loving him. He, he's, not talking about, uh, he's not talking about sex or money could be a hindrance. He's not talking about some sin could be a hindrance. He's saying 
your father and mother, your children, your brothers and sisters could be a hindrance. He's introducing love of family as a potential obstacle to love of Christ. Well, what does it mean to love family more than Jesus? Well, there's a passage of Scripture where, in the same book where he gives us some examples. In Luke 9, Luke 9, verses 57 through 62, this is what he says. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this first person, this would-be disciple, he tells the person, it's not as easy as you think. Following me is costly. And so that's sort of the, 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 what he's explaining to the would-be disciple there, that it's costly to follow Jesus. But look at the next person. Jesus speaks to this person, verse 59. To another, he said, so he calls this person, to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So this seems reasonable. Can I bury my dad first? Um, Now, his dad is probably not dead. He's not like on the way to the funeral right then. In Israel, when someone died, they were buried very quickly. So likely what's going on here is his dad's still alive. So he could be saying, let me live out my years with my dad. It could be that his dad's near death. Uh, I I don't know. He's probably waiting for his dad to die in some place. But here's the point. His response is, Jesus, I'll follow you later after I deal with some family obligations. I've got this family responsibility, a good thing. I've got this family responsibility, but I need to tend to that. And Jesus, I will follow you at a future time. I'll follow you at a future time. And Jesus is saying, this is the attitude of spiritually dead people. Let the, spirit, let the dead bury their dead. He's saying, if you were spiritually alive, you would see me as I am and you would follow me. Now you would drop whatever it is and follow me. It's a challenging passage, isn't it? Well, there's a third guy, and it doesn't get any easier here. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this guy says, look, I got to go back home. Got to wrap some things up. Family's definitely going to want to do a going away party. Mom would never understand if I just took off and followed God incarnate without first coming and checking with her and the family and all of this. And Jesus says, this guy's got an undivided heart. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. This guy's got a divided heart. He's called to an undivided heart. This guy's got a divided heart. Now, you say, I don't see that language in there. Well, look, what, look, at his, look at the metaphor he gives. He says, you cannot put your hand to the plow. So a plow was an instrument that was tied to oxen or some animal, and it was pulled forward, and as it was pulled, it dug a furrow in, or into, into the ground so that you could plant seed. So he's saying, you, you don't follow the animal, and, and you need a straight line in your field, in your crops. You want a straight line. So you, you can't do that and be looking back. Or this is a sermon on family, so let's make this more relatable today. You can't be driving and turn back to yell at the kids while you're driving like this. Because when you do this, you you start swerving. That's his point. You can't be looking back to what? Family. 
You can't be going back home and saying, oh, yeah, oh, and looking back there and plowing at the same time. What's he saying? Jesus demands our full attention, and there can't be a divided heart. He's saying, I must be your priority, even if the divided heart and the looking back is over good things. He's not saying you're looking back to sin, to anger, to uh, stealing, to greed. No, no, looking back to family, home. He's saying you cannot have a divided heart. It's still idolatry, no gods before me. So these are some examples that Jesus addresses. Well, how does the family idol surface in our lives? There's thousands of ways, I'm sure. There's probably as many different ways as there are people in the room. But here's one, and the scripture doesn't say this, so I'm not going to say that Jesus was teaching this here, but it could be that this first one uh, is tied into what we're reading in the passages we just read, and that's it, this, that idolatry surfaces in our lives, family idolatry, when we long for our family's approval. Going back home before I go could be something tied to that, but it's longing for family approval. It's putting your family's approval over Christ's approval, and that is a barrier to discipleship. Family approval over Christ's approval is a barrier to discipleship, and you know what? It's frequently a barrier to becoming a disciple to begin with. Many people never even begin to follow Jesus, never even trust Jesus as their Savior because of the longing, the yearning for family approval. In his book called The Problem of Jesus, Mark Clark writes the following. The God of family, and this is a lowercase g, the idol of family, the God of family, he writes, is particularly dangerous for a number of reasons. How often is it that people may be interested in Jesus, but out of allegiance to the worldview of their families, they don't entertain the idea of becoming a Christian? Maybe they are part of a deep religious heritage like Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu. Maybe they're part of a deep irreligious heritage like atheist, agnostic, or new age. They can't dream of denying their own blood. They can't dream of facing the rejection of those they love. Maybe that's you, he writes. Maybe that's you here today. You're wondering about Christ. You're interested in Jesus, but you realize that this may not set well with all the family. Are you afraid of committing to Jesus because of your family? Listen, family is a gift, but family is temporal. Following Jesus, knowing Christ is eternal. It has eternal implications to it. And here's what I found over the years in working with people, counseling people, befriending, just knowing people whose family have resisted them for their faith in Christ. Here's what I found is that the Spirit always sustains us in times of difficulty. That when you come to the difficult conversation, the difficult holiday, the awkward time, the the passive-aggressive statements or the aggressive-aggressive statements about your faith, God will give you what you need in that moment. And one reason I know that is because the Bible says that, that he's always with us. But this, because Jesus knows what this is like. Jesus experienced this himself. You see, Jesus' family didn't always believe in him. So he understands. He sympathizes. The Bible says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with family opposition. 
There's an account in Mark 3. It's amazing. Jesus' mother and brothers come to seize him because what he's saying is crazy talk. He's out teaching. They think it's crazy. They're coming to seize him. Get Jesus back home. He's saying all kinds of crazy stuff, making crazy claims. That's what his family said. There's another time in Luke 9, another Jesus family verse in the Gospel of Luke, where there's a big crowd following Jesus, and someone in the crowd says, hey, way back at the back of the crowd, your mother and your brothers are here. And so what Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? But those who hear and obey the word of God. He's saying, those of you that are sitting here listening to my teaching and obeying me, this is my family. Now, obviously, there is blood family. He loves them. He honors his mom. He, he doesn't disrespect them. But he's making a distinction between those who believe in that family and those who don't. Now, praise God, they all came to believe. His family did come to believe. Um, but at one point, they didn't. Jesus understands this. Jesus actually prepares us to expect family pressure and family division if we follow him. Maybe in our immediate family, maybe in our extended family, maybe all over. Look what Jesus says in Luke 12. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He's saying, look, when people choose to believe me, it, it may blow up the family. Because not everybody's going to be on board with Jesus and not everybody's going to be on board with family members following Jesus. So he actually prepares us for this and says this this is to be expected. It was the norm in his world. He's a Jew teaching that he is God. People weren't neutral on that. They hated him enough to kill him or they followed him. And so you can imagine families were divided over this. You think we had a divisive election year around the family table last year? This is divisive. Is he the Messiah or isn't he? So he prepares us. And I think, friends, it can be helpful just to acknowledge that Jesus said, expect this. Expect that following Jesus may stir things up in the family. And the reality is that being free from the idol of family involves dying to the desire to be affirmed by our family, appreciated by our family, respected by our family, acknowledged as right before our family. See, if the the family idol, which surfaces oftentimes through longing for family approval, sometimes it's dying to that approval that is the key to being free to follow Jesus. Jesus wants you to pray for your family. Jesus wants you, please hear this, he wants you to love your family, serve your family, honor your family, but you mustn't live for your family's approval. They may disagree with many of the personal choices you make if you follow Jesus. They may be very well-meaning. They may disagree with personal choices you make. They may disagree with your parenting. They may disagree with your church involvement. And this is hard because we love our family and we want them to know Jesus like we know Jesus. But this is part of our calling. Jesus said, I didn't come in a kumbaya moment to unite all the families. As a matter of fact, I'm going to divide families over who follows Jesus and who doesn't. 
Jesus will give us all we need to love him first and love our families second. Listen, longing for approval from the family, normally we think if you're older, if you're an adult, you think, man, my siblings, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, we think in those categories. But listen to this, you can long for the approval of your children as well, and that's an idol. I remember one dad saying that he had failed to correct his teenage son as his teenage son started straying off the path of following Jesus, straying away from what he was being raised in as a Christian home. And he said he failed to correct his son because he so longed for his son's approval. He said it was only later that he saw that he wanted his son's approval more than he wanted God's approval. He said, I wanted my son to like me, and thus I failed to step in with discipline or allowing consequences in his life as I should have. We can live for anybody's approval, but this runs deep in the family. And when we live for the approval of others, it's idolatry. Here's the reality. Jesus may divide our families. Now, I pray he saves all of our family members and we're united before it's over. But he may divide our families if we follow him. Parents, your, your teenager may hate you for a season. I'm not talking about hating you because you're a jerk or I'm a jerk. I'm talking about hating us because we're following Jesus. He, he may, she may hate you for a season. Your unbelieving spouse may threaten to leave you. Your siblings may exclude you from the family stuff because you're the religious one, the, the kind of crazy nut job sibling. Your parents may criticize you, but you will only be able to love your family well if you love Jesus more than you love your family. The only way you will love your family well is if you love Jesus first and he empowers you to love them as he does. So how does the family idol surface in our lives? First, by longing for family approval. Another way it it, it rises in our hearts is by longing for the ideal family. The ideal family. We we all want godly families. If you're a Christian here, you want a godly family. We all want healthy relationships in our family that bring us joy, support, care, We all want our families to serve as a witness to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is good. And that is a lofty goal that we all pray for and live for and serve one another in. That's good. But listen, this desire, this desire for godly family can easily move from a godly vision into a sinful desire, a craving, a a yearning. Here's what I mean by that. It can become a demand that I must have if I'm going to be satisfied in life, if I'm going to have any joy or any purpose in my life. I must have my family ideal functioning as I want it, or or even as God prescribes. We could say it that way, even biblically as God prescribes. I, I can want that in order to be happy 
a yearning so strong that we can't even experience satisfaction without having the ideal family experience. And when that happens, that you have to have this to be content, you have to have this to know any satisfaction and joy in your life, then in that moment, Jesus is not enough. In that moment, it is, I must have Jesus plus, and anything that comes after Jesus plus is danger. I must have Jesus plus the ideal family in the way I want the ideal family. And that's idolatry. Longing for the ideal family, it is a significant temptation. It's a temptation for single adults. Singles who've never married and feel that their life will never have real purpose or meaning without marriage, that's a lie. And we as a church have not always supported our singles because at times we've exalted marriage higher than the Bible does, meaning that we portray it as something that you must have to really know meaning in life and to be complete. It's not easy living as a single adult desiring the gift of marriage. That is not easy at all. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then there must be a way for him to strengthen single adults and to sustain single adults with contentment and meaning and purpose in their lives. Listen, the family idol is ruthless. It will eat you up and spit you out. The family idol tells the divorced person that he or she is damaged goods and doesn't really fit into God's family, the church. The family idol tells the widow or the widower that their best days are behind them, and there's no real future until they go to heaven. That's a lie. The family idol punishes its followers. That longing for the ideal family, it's a trap and it's a punishment because it hides the glory of Jesus. If we could see the glory of Jesus as we will one day in full display, everyone would be satisfied. Nobody would be saying, that's great, the glory of the resurrected Savior, but I was hoping for a little more. I also know no one will feel like they are missing anything if we could see the glory of Jesus. But idols eclipse the glory of Jesus and tell us, no, 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 you must have this to be happy. The longing for the ideal family tells the childless couple, there's something wrong with you. God is punishing you. God is opposing you. Or at best, God is just distant from your pain as you long for a child. That's a lie. The Bible says that God is near the brokenhearted, that Jesus is the suffering servant who is acquainted with grief. God is with us in our pain to comfort us. The family idol says to the blended family, oh, you're the real minority down at the church. You know, you kind of don't really fit with the other families given the background of your two families. That's a lie. That is a lie. The family idol tells us there's just one type of family that really matters. Jesus didn't fit that family. He didn't have that family. The most complete human to ever live, fully God, fully man. 
And listen, even if you fit the so-called ideal family model, that is you're a married couple with children or you are um, a married couple with kids, maybe with grandkids even, this idol will tempt you too. It will tempt you. And, and, and it will tell you something about your children. See, the Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. But the family idol, the, the longing for the ideal family, puts a pressure on us to make our children something more than a gift. We get our eyes off the giver, and we get our eyes on the gift. Sinclair Ferguson said the following when addressing this. He said, children are more important than life itself to loving parents. But for that very reason, these relationships can be the source of the great spiritual tempta- of the greatest spiritual temptation and become the strongest spiritual hindrance because it is so easy to put them first instead of the Lord Jesus. Why is it that Jesus says you must hate your family? Why is it that he picks family to say that with? You must love them less, we know he means. Why does he say that? Because they're such a gift and they're so precious that it's so tempting to make them more than Jesus. How do we, let me say something to parents, how do we put our kids first? There's probably a thousand ways, I'll just mention two. One way we put our kids first is we make our kids a savior. We make our kids a savior. In the book Seculosity by David Zoll, he writes about this kind of parenting And he writes about how badly we want success for our children. And he says, we believe instinctively that their triumph will redress our own failure. This is parenting as redemption with the child cast in the role of savior. You see, they cease to be a person in their own right and become our second chance to get into the school that rejected us. They, 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 they become the ones that follow the dream that we didn't have the guts to stick with. They enjoy the childhood or adolescence that we were denied. In other words, through our kids, we rewrite the story that we wanted and did not have. And so they become our redemption. And guess what? That places them in the role of Savior. Is this really a thing? Hey, why don't you ask any teacher in Frisco about demanding parents that are living their lives through their kids and see if they have a story or two to tell you. Ask any coach, not just a school coach, even recreational sports leagues. Ask any coach who sat Johnny for two innings that one game, and ask them if there's some parents in the stands that are trying to relive their own glory and trying to, to identify, overly identify with their kids, living their lives through their kids. This is what Kyle Eidelman uh, wrote. He, he wrote a book on idolatry, and he wrote the following, placing your value and finding your identity in your child puts the child in God's place in your life, and that's a lot to ask even for an honor roll student. Placing your value in another, idolatry. Placing your identity in another, idolatry. We've said that about job. We've said that about all kinds of money. We've said that about all kinds of stuff. It can happen with our kids. And it not only puts a lot of pressure on them, which is an issue, 
but it ultimately calls us to write a story for our life that's not submitted to Christ, but is living through another. What does it mean to put our kids first? Well, we make our kids a savior, or we tie our well-being to our child. That's the second idea. We tie our well-being to our child. Someone has said that a mom is only as happy as her saddest child. A mom is only as happy as her saddest child. I think there's something right about that, isn't there? Because we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're called to weep with those who weep. We're all called to compassion, but there's a unique gift of compassion in mothers. So there's something right about that, that a mom is only as happy as her saddest child. But, but our ultimate well-being must be tied to Christ and no other person. Listen, if any family member, including your child, uh, your young child or your adult child consistently has control of your mind and your emotions, your emotional well-being is tied to them. It may be that they have taken the place of Christ in your life. You're looking to them as the source of joy. Them as the source of purpose. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of distant uh, parenting that lacks compassion. We are called to enter into our kids' lives, to love them, to sacrifice for them, to have compassion upon them. But we dare not tie our emotional well-being, our well-being overall, to them. I, I know what that is like. There have been various times in my own life when one of my children has not been doing well. And and especially seasons when perhaps they were not doing well as it relates to following Christ. And here's what I find. I find that all of my joy and all of my hope, all of my meaning and purpose gets tied to his or her choices in that moment. And at one level, it makes sense, right? What could possibly be a greater burden for the Christian parent than to see their child stray from Christ? It makes sense at one level. But on the other hand, we are called to trust Jesus, who is more faithful and loves our children more than we ever could. If you tie your well-being to your child, you will live on a roller coaster. You will be high and exhilarated when they win the award, when they make a great choice. Uh, when, when they succeed in some endeavor, but you will be down in the dumps of despair and depression when they make a bad choice, when, when, they, when they do something that not only you disapprove of, but more importantly, the Lord disapproves of. It, 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 even when our kids have high highs or low lows where they crush our hearts, God wants us to find our trust and our hope in him and in his character. He is the good shepherd. So how do we respond to all of this? Tying our well-being to our child, making our child a a savior. Uh, How do we process all of these various realities? Wanting, uh, craving our family approval, um, longing for it, longing to be, Uh, approved of, 
by then how do we process this well this will be super simple and it's going to sound trite but we put Jesus first we put Jesus first you won't love anyone well unless you love him more than you love them in the end of the chapter I referred to earlier written by Kyle Eidelman he writes the following at the end. He wrote a chapter. He wrote a book on idolatry. He wrote a chapter on family idolatry. This is what he said at the end, and I think it's moving. It, it's, at the end of the chapter, it's blocked off, blocked off. There's this little section that says in bold letters, Jesus is my everything. Idols are defeated not by being removed but by being replaced. This is what he writes. The God, little g, the idol, the God of family painted a beautiful picture It showed a dinner table at Thanksgiving with all the faces looking hungrily toward a baked turkey. Parents, children, and grandparents were all there, and it was so clear that everyone loved one another. Who wouldn't respond to such a scene? It's what we all want. The God of family may have been the most deceiving of all the false idols because he seemed so decent and so proper. He offered something that is already one of God's greatest gifts, family. But he offered a distorted version of it. What he offered was not truly a family, but a cocoon, a a place to shut the world out. He offered obsessive relationships in which everyone must play God to someone else. He called all of it love, but in retrospect, it looked more like desperation. We doted on our children until we smothered them. We made demands of our marriages until we exhausted them. Jesus showed us what family was supposed to be. He helped us understand that all of the relationships inside the home are reflections of what he is to us. It's the love of Christ that teaches us how to love each other. We said family is everything. But it wasn't until Jesus was our everything that we discovered everything family can be. That is so well said. We said family is everything, but it wasn't until Jesus was everything that we discovered everything family can be. Last thought of response. Jesus is everything. Last thought, we're to press into our forever family. Jesus made a distinction between his earthly family that was unbelieving at that point in Luke 9 and his spiritual family, those who believed. And he said, this is my family. And that's one of the beauties of the church. That's why we need the church. That's why we need to be together because we are family to one another. And for these issues, I know I've touched on things that touch deeply in some of our hearts. And we need the church to support us and help us, help us to walk through these things. God has given you a family. And by the way, it's not an ideal family, too. We're all messed up in this church, too. <laughs> but, uh, but at least we're following Jesus together. You know, we're, we're getting redemption for our messed up lives. We press into family together. If you're the single adult that I referred to earlier, you need the family. And by the way, the family needs you as a single adult. God puts you, the solitary, into family. You have family. And maybe he will provide a spouse and children. I don't know. But you do have family and we need you. If you are divorced, you need the family the church family, to surround you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to help you. If you're a single parent, to come alongside you and help you with the the stuff of life. 
if you're widowed or a widower, especially if you're an older widow or widower, uh, the church needs you to invest in the next generation. Your best days aren't behind you. God has a plan for you today. And we've got younger people that need your wisdom and your investment. You're not on the sidelines. You're the heart of the game. If you're childless, how many times have I sat and wept and prayed with someone who's been unable to conceive or been in small groups where that's been the case and watched the church circle around a childless couple with love and support and help? You need that. If you're struggling in your marriage, you need the church. You need to be able to admit we have a challenge. We're not the ideal family. We need help, and there's help in the church for all of us. If you're struggling as a parent, you need a place where you can acknowledge that and receive help. Listen, we're teaching a class this summer called The Art of Parenting. It's for eight weeks. Get in that class. The power of that class is twofold. One is the content that you will learn about biblical parenting. But the second key to the class is to sit in a circle with other parents and go, oh, I'm not the only one. I thought everybody was perfect around here. There is a power in being real and helping one another. Listen, everybody looks like they got it together. That's because you're seeing them in the lobby with their kids smiling. You see them this afternoon while they're trying to put them down for nap time and tell me how wonderful it is. Or when they're trying to put them to bed at night. Or when the husband and wife are on the drive to church this morning. Okay, this is not reality. Instagram is not reality. We need to be together and see some reality. Or if we're not, see it, offer some reality to one another. And that's what the church is, so you can be real, and you're loved by Christ and by his people. And there's hope for you. If you're a family struggling with those who oppose you, you need others to come up to you and support you, especially at holiday time when you know it's going to be a beatdown, visiting the in-laws or the relatives or whatever. You need prayer support. You need encouragement. I've been on those text uh, groups together where someone's going to Thanksgiving and we're texting them, praying for you. How's it going? Because they're expecting it's going to be rough because of their faith in Christ. Struggle, maybe you struggle because you believe you don't have the perfect family and everyone else does. Get deep enough into community for that to be shattered and for you to get your eyes on Jesus as he empowers you to build the family that he's called you to build, a family with love and gospel and grace. I prayed that Jesus would stir up hearts today. And I prayed that he would stir them up, not so that we would look back with regret or so that we would feel some pain or so that we pat ourselves on the back and say, well, well done, good and faithful me. I haven't said these things for any of those reasons, but so that we would look to Jesus and cry out in our time of need, the one true Savior. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.